as you're telling these um, giving us these examples i haven't even thought about these things so for example asking for particular type of accommodation when you're in a hotel for example and you're at school accessing particular buildings you know things like that as an able-bodied person i would not have thought of those things and the fact that you're able to tell me about them shows you know, we still have such a long way to go and you know you've shared some really interesting perspectives but from your own experience and insight i mean how do we facilitate greater accessibility and broader conversations around disabilities and rare debilitating health conditions such as yours in a way that's constructive but also enables the person to have their own agency yeah i mean i think this is really a massive issue as disabled people don't even have a seat at the table yet really if you look mm. at um like in houses of parliament i mean i was looking up there are five MPs with a disability. 20% of the adult population has a disability, and yet there are five MPs in Parliament who have said they have a disability. Like, and I, it's, you know, if we aren't even here to make these decisions and tell you what people need, and from the first hand, because, you know, able-bodied people are just never going to be able to understand these things as disabled do, people do, and be able to make the changes to systems and changes to facilities and services that will actually benefit disabled people. Hello everyone. Welcome to a brand new season of Brown Don't Frown, a podcast which was inspired by my own personal story and journey with womanhood and feminism. It's a podcast where we celebrate new perspectives and unconventional thinking. I am your host, Tanya Hardcastle. Stay tuned for what we hope to be an informative, engaging and thought-provoking season three. If you have thoughts or comments or would like to get in touch and contribute to the podcast in any way, please do feel free to get in touch at browndontfrownpod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Take care and stay safe. So Brown Don't Frown tonight is honoured to be joined by Lucy Stafford, Director of Patient-Led Engagement for Access, a non-profit which advocates for access to medical cannabis through mainstream healthcare. Lucy is also a long-term patient of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, a rare lifelong genetic disorder which can cause debilitating effects. Lucy, welcome to today's show. Thank you for being here. Hi Tanya, thank you so much for having me. It's an honour to be on Brown Don't Frown. Amazing, thank you. It would be great to uh, know a bit more about you and to tell the listeners. So please do, uh, in your own time, feel free to, yeah, to chat a bit more. Sure. So I am 20 years old. I'm a university student. I'm studying science, technology, engineering and maths at university. And I run an organisation called PLEA, a patient-led engagement for access, as Tanya has just um, just introduced um, but I also live with a condition called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome um, which has I've had it all my life because it's a genetic condition um, but it really started to affect me since I was about 10 years old and really since then I've been in pain pretty much continuously and my condition basically means my body doesn't produce collagen correctly and that's a protein and it basically means that I'm much much more hypermobile and bendy than I should be within my organs, within my skin, within my muscles, within my joints. And um, it's a real spectrum of the condition and everybody is affected differently. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, growing up, 
it really affected me quite severely and the treatments that I was offered um, did very, very little to actually help me and caused me significant, significant side effects. Um, so my condition means that I can like dislocate my joints very, very easily and just intense, immense amount of pain, like unimaginable pain. Mm. Um, and currently, really, when you're in a lot of pain, they give you opiate medication. Um, so these are drugs that are derived from heroin. Um, one of the drugs I was on was fentanyl, and that's actually 50 times stronger than heroin. Um, so like incredibly powerful medication. Mm. And as you can imagine, it's very, very difficult to live any kind of life on them. And yes. the side effects they cause, the mood changes, the digestive problems, all of these different things basically meant um, I had to kind of drop out of school when I was about 15. I was in, I basically lived in hospital for a few years as I was on feeding tubes. I couldn't eat, I couldn't drink, I couldn't wee. Like it was really dire and things were not looking good and I was in excruciating pain every single day and that's really how I expected my life to go. Um, but Thankfully, I was very fortunate to come across an alternative medication, which has quite literally saved my life, to be honest. So you said you were diagnosed with EDS at quite a young age, um, and you've spoken uh, quite publicly to raise awareness of this rare condition and to illustrate the struggles you've clearly endured from it, you know, from long-term pain, as you've said, to practical difficulties that you faced or used to experience in your everyday life. Um, and, you know, it's not a particularly well-known condition. So for the benefit of the listeners, you've said in your own words a bit more about your diagnosis and your journey with it so far. I just wanted to um, understand a bit more about um, the level of support you received. Um, so from your family, your friends, medical professionals and schools. Uh, is that what you expected? Uh, and particularly when you were suffering from your worst side effects from the pain medication, did you find that the facilities and systems that you regularly used, such as your school, shops or social occasions, were they accommodating? Well, okay, so I must say I am so, so, so fortunate in as much as I have had a family who have always done everything they can to support me and believe in me and help me get the absolute best care that I can yeah. get because as a disabled person within a healthcare system or really within any healthcare system you are incredibly incredibly vulnerable and particularly when it comes to invisible illnesses and particularly as a young woman yeah. you're often not believed when you're in pain you're told Absolutely. oh you know you might like wet like the word hysteria and hysterical you know that comes from this idea that women in pain particularly you know and are just making it all up in this hypochondrosis type thing. Yes. And I absolutely come across that in the medical profession. Like no one can believe when you're in that much pain and particularly when you can't obviously see it. Um, people just don't trust disabled people. And I really do feel like the actual not trusting of disabled people actually goes much, much deeper within society um, systemically really. I mean, you look at, for example, our disability benefit system, where the whole system is really set up to make sure that people who shouldn't get benefits don't get them, uh, but who shouldn't, who are, you know, this whole idea that people are manipulating the system yeah. and trying to, you know, disable people seen as benefit scroungers. And therefore these systems don't actually support disabled people because no, they're, they're just don't. trying to kind of catch people out on a trick or, for example, you see photos on the internet where there's someone in a wheelchair walking and it's like, oh my God, they must be faking it. And it's like, no, people in wheelchairs can walk sometimes. Yeah, they can, just not yeah. like other people. 
And it's like, we live in a society that's sort of like, oh, really? Like, could you really be ill? Or, oh, can you, you know, can you really do that? Or can you really not? And I think growing up, that definitely affected me. And I, you, you, you start to question yourself as well, don't you? And you think, oh, well, maybe I am. Like, maybe I am exaggerating. If everyone else thinks I am, then it must be the case. Totally, you know, ableism can be so internalized. And it's like, there are like times when I was growing up where I'd be in immense, it's immense amount of pain and I knew I should have rested I knew I should have done things and now I'm older I know my my triggers and I will take a rest and then I'll be able to get back to things much quicker whereas when I was younger I would always be like I have to push myself I have to prove to everyone that I'm you know doing this and whatever when actually that just made me sicker yeah and it's, of course it's like we live in a world that's trying to catch disabled people out to be honest and yeah yeah it does seem so like bad. that they seem like the odds are invisible disabilities yeah mental health condition all sorts of different things and it, it it harms people it damages people and it you know and it's it's just how are people going to get the accommodations they need when you're not even letting them express what their concerns are and what their issues are and it just yeah yeah I mean exactly. and like for example going to school like I literally couldn't in a wheelchair it was not accessible and I was told that they haven't they had an accessibility plan to make things accessible by 2040 or something oh like that <laughs> that's crazy yeah what about all the people who needed help in those years like that's just ridiculous how can that be a part of the plan something in the foreseeable that's how yeah, you um, push away responsibility oh we'll just we'll deal with it in a few years time exactly and so you know i feel as a disabled person you always feel like a bit of a burden like anytime you need an accommodation you always have to ask for it and you have to ask for it again and then you then it doesn't then it falls through and it doesn't happen and you're left in a vulnerable situation mm -hmm. and you're you know your safety is at risk and all and you know and people just don't want to take it seriously to be honest as far as <laughs> in my experience and it's yeah it's heartbreaking really yes I can, I can um, imagine it must be and I'm you know you've illustrated so um well it's actually quite sad actually the way you've illustrated how you've experienced these and as you're telling these um giving us these examples I haven't even thought about these things so for example asking for particular type of accommodation when you're in a hotel for example and you're at school accessing particular buildings you know things like that as an able-bodied person I would not have thought of those things and the fact that you're able to tell me about them shows you know, we still have such a long way to go and you know you shared some really interesting perspectives but from your own experience and insight I mean how do we facilitate greater accessibility and broader conversations around disabilities and rare debilitating health conditions such as yours in a way that's constructive but also enables the person to have their own agency yeah i mean i think this is really a massive issue as disabled people don't even have a seat at the table yet really if you look mm. at um like in houses of parliament i mean i was looking up there are five mps with a disability 20% of the adult population has a disability and yet there are five MPs in parliament mm. who has said they have a disability like and I, it's you know if we aren't even here to make these decisions and tell you what people need and from the first hand because you know able-bodied people are just never going to be able to understand these things as disabled do, people do and be able to make the changes to systems and changes to facilities and services that will actually benefit disabled people then we won't move forward really as far as i can see unless we are you know truly being inclusive in our conversations and truly like and not just thinking oh we're thinking about them for tokenism we're actually mm. engaging and actually working out how we could where the barriers are yeah what's, you know because 
I don't think it's because it, disabled people don't want to be MPs. It's because they physically can't be. <laughs> like, yeah. It's, well, it's, just, yeah, we need to know, make the process more accessible for them then so that they can be MPs. They can stand and make the application to be an MP. And totally. See. And I actually found out very recently that there was a scheme introduced in 2012 for basically access if you want a disabled person who wants to stand for election. Mm. And over the last few years, that scheme has been completely scrapped and no longer funded. Um, and since coronavirus, they've said that they will not be funding it any going onwards any further. It's just such a shame and that those are the first cuts to be made whenever there's any sort of crisis, economic crisis. Those are the, those are the first types of schemes to go. Totally. And I think so much as like where ableism comes down to is, you know, we live in a capitalist society and unfortunately, you know, being disabled is expensive. Like you have to, you know, it's expensive to make these accommodations at times. It's not always, you know, or it takes time and people, we live in a world where we're going hundred miles per hour all the time. And so we don't, we don't want to waste the resources and or what is seen as a waste of resource really yeah. when actually it's things that we all need to be doing all the time because it's the only minority group that anybody could become part of at literally any time in their lives and yet mm -hmm. people don't seem to you know seem to have an urgency about making it like and like making our society accessible really i mean yeah. like i i feel like really disabled people are either infantilized or sensationalized or they're just not believed yeah. and like we're never mm -hmm. seen as just people who want to get on with our lives exactly you want to just go to university or yeah. get a job or whatever it's it's none of those and it's heartbreaking really it really is heartbreaking and you've you know illustrated so um eloquently that there are so many different reasons why these sorts of issues are being overlooked um and you've said you know there are for example what i've seen personally are disability conf disability confident employers who guarantee an interview for example for those who are disabled and you've spoken about things like agency versus you know being infantilized or being told or being not taken seriously enough that they have a natural condition and it's interesting to look at these sorts of schemes and actually think as you mentioned um whether it's tokenism or whether they're actually doing something to help these people and ensure that they do get a seat at the table and you know it's, it's interesting because it might just be optics but it might be that they are truly making those strides to give those people a seat at the table but at the moment it feels as though as you mentioned there are cuts so how do we actually know that these issues are being taken seriously and you've spoken about yeah, having, exactly. yeah and you've spoken about suffering you know extreme debilitating pain you've had surgery and you've spoken about you know having been tube fed for several years as a result of your condition and to cope with this for many years you said you were prescribed with strong opioids uh, until you came across medical cannabis and you touched upon this uh, in your introduction and you said you know it was, it was rather in incidentally that it came that you came across it it'd be helpful if you could tell us a bit more about your journey with pain management and how your experience with medical cannabis differs from taking traditional prescribed pain medication yeah, so I came across medical cannabis at a very, very, very low point in my life. It was actually my doctor who had been treating me for about seven years at that point, And he had seen that just increasing these doses of medications were just, they were doing certainly nothing to help me and just increasing the side effect profile. So I would just be like literally sleeping 18 hours a day and like have to shake me to wake me up. And like, how is anyone supposed to do physiotherapy or exercise yeah. or anything that might like, help their condition when they're literally in a comatose state. Like 
I could, you know, the time where I could barely like concentrate on a conversation, barely able to, you know, just really basic things. And so I wasn't then able to do the things that might have actually strengthened my body and helped me in the long run. Um, whereas with medical cannabis, like, it's like, I sleep well, I eat well, I have an appetite, I, my pain is either significantly reduced or it's not the main only aspect of my life. So I'm able to focus on something else. I'm able to go to a meeting. I'm able to hang out with my friends. I'm able to study. I can focus on something else, even if I'm in debilitating pain, which is really mm. strange, but it's yeah. exactly what I, I mean, these are ordinary things that, you know, people, a lot of the time we take for granted. And these are things that, you know, you just want to be able to do as a human being. Exactly. And I mean, this idea, this stoner stereotype of you know like not being able to get off the sofa because you're you know smoking cannabis and whatever i mean <laughs> it is just the most unapplicable thing to medical cannabis and it breaks my heart that people just cannot seem to recognize that they are different things really you know that like when you're using utilizing something as a medication to improve like someone put it to me very um, nicely actually they said cannabis is very democratic if you're high functioning and then you use a lot it might reduce your productivity whereas if you're unable to um, function and you consume it then it's likely to actually improve your quality of life and enable you to do other things and it's like it works you know it's a medication so what it how it works is with within regulating your endocannabinoid system and the research that's being done to understand how these medications actually alter how you know pain signals are sent and the inflammation responses within the body it's fascinating these complex conditions mm. and yeah like this is all this medication does is enable me to do things it's enabled me to go to, to live your life to do exercise yeah to, you know do things and what it really let me do is stop taking all of those medications so now yeah. i haven't taken an opioid in 18 months and i don't have now have that significant side effect profile i'm you know able to eat and drink and do all the great things that i've always wanted to do really mm, um, absolutely yeah. and i mean as a result of your life-changing experience with medical cannabis to manage your condition you've become an advocate for decriminalizing it for those with medical conditions. Uh, I think it'd be really interesting to know a bit more about PLEA, uh, your work with them, and also a bit more about your new project with Project 21. Yeah, so PLEA is actually um, to challenge the inequalities in accessing cannabis-based medicinal products because um, they were rescheduled in November 2018, so almost two years ago, um, to allow for, uh, to allow them to be prescribed um, by any specialist. Um, and unfortunately, since then, the uptake by the NHS has been very, very slow um, to non-existent. I mean, you can now get it for a, a small number of conditions on the NHS, but um, recent figures have showed that there are still 1.4 million patients medicating illicitly um, who are still you know, risking criminalization, potentially risking their health through accessing on the black market, um, simply because they cannot go to their doctor and have an open and honest discussion and their doctor is not educated or empowered to make these, to write these prescriptions um, still. So what PLEA does, we are really a patient-led community and I think that's what makes it really so special to me is that we are all people with lived experience who have been through these systems and who have dealt with the stigma and therefore we want to support one another who are also going through it because yes. we know how isolating it can be 
Um, and then through doing that, we really, we engaged with clinicians and researchers and organizations and people who were trying to learn more about medical cannabis, because really in this space, the patients are the experts. They have learned how to manage their conditions on their own accord, like just of because course, they had no yeah, other real option. Experience. I mean, what more can you want? I mean, that's the most. Exactly. And so it's taking that and utilizing it so that it can be learned from. And these medications can be prescribed legitimately for people who may benefit. And it's another tool in the toolbox that currently, unfortunately, due to decades of um, like prohibition and a complete lack of research because it was all but illegal, um, it's completely come to a, a come to a halt and unfortunately even though the law has changed and that was such a momentous thing and it was literally due to um an insane amount of campaigning particularly um from young children um, parents of young children with epilepsy yes um, and yet still we are not seeing the changes that need to have happened like there are still um children with epilepsy who are unable to access their medication parents still spending thousands of pounds or traveling abroad um still to this day even though you ask Matt Hancock, he'll stand up in Parliament and say any doctor can prescribe it when not one prescription has actually happened. So it's kind of been, the law was changed with no system to import or actually like regulate these medications or make them accessible to patients, unfortunately. So now what's happened is um, the private sector has kind of stepped in to fill the void, um, which is great for patients who can afford it. But unfortunately, you know, being a disabled person, many many people are on low income and disability benefits you know you're not um like accessing private health so we're so fortunate to have the nhs and yeah. we all think we can depend on it and here we are you know and unfortunately the very very vulnerable people who do need these medications just left out on a lurch mm. and yeah it it's, so it seems so the people who benefit the most from these new regulations are the ones who are who can afford private healthcare. And that's just so sad. It just bolsters the uh, inequality, the ongoing inequality and the status quo. So basically what Project 2021 is doing is utilizing patients who are accessing their medication um, through clinics and offering them a subsidized rate of medication. So it is making it more accessible to a larger amount of people. Wow. Um, and then taking their um, healthcare outcomes um, and seeing the safety and the efficacy of it. And it's, really studying the whole like quality of life and how it affects people and seeing you know and so it's not a randomized controlled trial so it's not where somewhere where it is placebos and that kind of thing it's an observational study um mm. but it really is um a lifeline for patients to be honest um because it's another avenue that really we need and will hopefully build up that that database build up that evidence um and show why these medications should be covered because unfortunately the costs are simply really are so high simply because of the regulation put around them I mean, it's a schedule two special medication which just yeah. means you import it to do anything with it it costs a huge amount of money and so sort of hopefully to push those boundaries and push those barriers and show how much of a need there are there is and to you know make this a more accessible medication because mm. yeah yeah, I mean, you mentioned the the regulations around it can be very tight, and 
for example, I mean, um, the NICE, the National Healthcare Institute for Excellence, which is, I guess, the policy arm of our healthcare system, have said, you know, there aren't sufficient random control, randomized control trials to, you know, prove that the, the drug is effective against things like chronic pain and all these other debilitating conditions, for example, epilepsy and other chronic conditions. And at the end of the day, it's about, well, are we prioritizing these randomized control trials? If that's what it takes to legitimize this particular cannabis product for treating chronic conditions, then should we not be focusing our time and our energy on ensuring that these products are tested properly? I mean, if that is the main concern, but it seems as though that's something that's not really been particularly prioritized in, in recent times. Um, and, and yeah, I guess the NHS position as a result of that is that there is currently insufficient evidence to support cost-effective medical cannabis prescriptions for chronic pain or any other conditions. And you've spoken about how you've you know, previously had to resort to private clinics uh, and the black market, which I imagine is eye-wateringly expensive and also potentially dangerous. Um, you know, there is still so much stigma around drugs, particularly cannabis, when it's seen in its recreational context and, and carries with it a lot of negative cultural and stereotypical connotations. As someone whose life has changed for the better from medicating with cannabis, what would you say to someone in a sim similar position to you who may be in agonizing pain and is looking for an alternative to opioids or surgery, but who may be reluctant to try it due to the stigma and criminal repercussions? Uh, I mean, personally, I think is I am so sad that I got to such a rock bottom that yeah. I felt absolutely no stigma or no fear in taking it like you're just so desperate it was yeah. Just like, yeah like at that stage you're like oh I would literally try anything a crystal up my bum and my pain <laughs> you know I would do anything, all these mad things and I'm lucky that it was actually cannabis that I tried and it actually did help me and I yeah. think I just wish I had you know it had been an option, it had been a tool earlier in my journey. Um, and I think it's the way around that is education, is understanding and is meeting and just meeting people who are experts in it. In it. And luckily, you know, within the UK, there is a real growing community of um, clinicians and patients and like, research organizations who are really understanding these medications. And I think connecting with people and, for example, through play, who do understand and who do get why it's necessary and educating yourself and, and understanding the wide complexities of um, the medication, because it's not always the most straightforward thing to understand. It can be quite overwhelming. Like, do I just go to a drug dealer and pick up whatever? <laughs> yeah. It's actually a very, very complex medication. Like, it's not very complex, but it's something that really you, you do need guidance to understand like anything and really that's why a patient should be able to go to their clinician and understand and talk and be guided through it um i mean what i would say is just you know take your time like educate yourself like try and step away from the stigma and like and realize why we're in a position where we're stigmatizing this medication mm. um really you know it was only like two years ago it was initially made illegal from a racially um a racially fired war on drugs yes that basically discounted any sort of medicinal benefit of the cannabis plant like you know the, there are reasons behind why we have such negative views on this plant and it's 
not necessarily because the plant is dangerous in fact it's not at all um and understanding and learning and researching that um and under finding resources is really i think empowering yourself with knowledge and understanding mm. is the best way forward and then you know you should never force yourself to do anything you don't feel comfortable doing um but like empowering yourself with that knowledge so you can make the best decision for yourself because at the end of the day we're always the people who know ourselves and our bodies best and of course make that decision and yeah figure out what you really yeah that's really interesting and the plea community as you said is is patient-led and that's what makes it so unique and special in the sense that people are able to learn and share their own experiences and hopefully be able to inform someone else's perspective and the way they may deal with their own condition um is there a particular way in which someone who may be interested in joining the plea community can can do so is there a website or anything like that yes um we are at pleacommunity.org.uk and you can absolutely sign up to be a community member and then we have like a, a closed facebook forum where patients can connect and yeah yeah it's very inspirational to see you develop and work so hard to campaign to access people to access medical cannabis especially those who are you know in insufferable pain and who you know need need another alternative to you know very strong prescription painkillers which can have as you as you've told us you know horrible debilitating side effects that can even reverse or be counterintuitive to what it is that you want to do i.e uh minimize chronic pain so there's a lot there and i think yeah it will be very interesting to see where medical cannabis takes you takes plea community and and the wider community who are fighting for you know better access to medical cannabis uh, i really also wanted to ask you um what has been the most empowering or and positive uh, aspect of your advocacy work so far and secondly what have you learned from it I mean, I just feel so, so fortunate to be in the position that I am in. And I really like, I don't know, I don't even see it. Like, I just feel like I have been so well supported by my family in order to access this medication. I've never been stigmatized. I've never, you know, and like, because of that, I've been able to be well. And unfortunately, there are so, so many patients who are completely silenced by their job or their family or where they're living. They might lose their home if they speak out about this. And they, and for me, it just feels like the only thing I can do is, is to speak up about it because I'm in the position where I can. Mm. And I think, I really, I really, you know, it it breaks my heart that there are people out there who know that this is a medication that might help them or that they might have tried once and then they can't access anymore or they're really interested in trying it, but they just, they can't even speak about it. And so I think for me, that is the most empowering thing is I feel, I just feel like I can speak about it. So I have to speak about it, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think part of a patient-led organization it's really empowering to you know all come together and say you know we've been through some horrible experiences you know everybody you speak to has a different story and how cannabis has helped them through that and helped their journey um and then to see that be built into something that will hopefully really support other people and improve access for future patients and it just it just kind of is kind of making making you know something good out of some really rubbish <laughs> rubbish experiences and yeah. I really you know being supported and empowered by like I've like 
having a seat at some of the tables that I have in like drug policy recon groups and in in just I just feel so honored to be in that position yeah it's incredible and and you can shape um the the policy that um that's around medical cannabis as well and that's a very incredible position to be in and I'm sure you're learning so much from it and having a, a very positive experience so far because I'm sure it's teaching you a lot about yourself as well as you're engaging in these discussions with with the experts oh absolutely I mean like I do just feel like everything often does feel a bit like a whirlwind and I feel like (laughs) yeah always learning always always learning something new and like the people who you know some of the experts that I've met who are just as passionate as me and they haven't they haven't lived through the same pain that I've lived through but they've seen the injustice Mm. and that inspires me too because it's just it's such a wider issue than people kind of see it to be and it's so there's so much injustice within it all and yeah it just it it makes me livid to be honest when I think about it it makes me so angry and upset but it's turning that anger into something productive and positive yes you know there's no point being angry there's just no point and then just letting it stew inside me no I you know we need to be working how we understand why people have different viewpoints how we can you know build evidence and do the research and develop the understanding because there's so much we still do not know about the plant don't get me wrong like I you know I think we need so much more understanding but we're clearly in a position where a lot of patients are medicating safely they are Mm. well and they're getting on with their lives and that is something we need to learn from and we cannot just keep discounting it I mean there's been reports for the last like 20 years coming out of parliament saying oh this is something we need to research but it's just it not, just keeps, you know, yeah, it's not being prioritized, it's just pushed to the back burner. And, and it is literally, the, the, I think the reason is because the, the stigma associated with it, you know, there are constantly fears that medical cannabis is going to be, you know, the prescriptions are going to be exploited to, you know, yeah. to be misused and used recreationally and things like that. But people don't realize that, you know, only UK doctors can prescribe it and it needs to be, um, you know it's, it's subject to very stringent regulations and so not everyone can can access it and that fear i think just needs to be wiped out if well if we are ever going to progress into utilizing medical cannabis more more widely for those who have you know insufferable conditions totally i mean i'm going to be quite honest like you know if somebody wants some cannabis they can probably walk down the road and go and buy it outside there down the road because it's everywhere to be honest and whereas this is a very different situation this is yeah. unwell people who need to be able to go to their doctor have a conversation take some regulated product be guided through dosing be guided through understanding the medication instead and the of risks associated with it as well yeah yeah and it's it's getting you know and i think it's really truly only the patient patients who can stand up and show how unfair it is and show how it really affects real people's lives and why that needs to change mm, yeah and clearly you're doing uh, by the sounds of it and and from what i've seen uh, all over social media and and various other outlets that you're doing a fantastic job of raising awareness and doing all you can really to destigmatize the the conversations around medical cannabis uh, and its its use uh, uh, as a way of treating you know chronic illnesses like anxiety depression you know one in four of us have had or have anxiety or depression at some point in our lives and 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 a lot of people use it to address that um and things like that conversations around around those sorts of issues perhaps need to be 
um, more, more focused, more open, destigmatized. And it appears that the plea community and the work you're doing around your campaigning has really, you know, worked inroads to, to widen the conversation and facilitate, um, you know, more open perspectives around this issue. The pandemic, I'm sure, has enabled accessibility in many different ways and help people to function on a daily basis and balance their work and life um, and I'm sure it's, it's done the same for disabled people as well. Yeah I think it's actually been a bit of it's honestly been a bit of a frustrating time because for you like I love it everything is now accessible if I want to go to an event or if I want to go to if I need to go to a meeting I know I'm going to be able to get there and I know I'm not going to exhaust myself and make myself ill getting there but for years and years and years and years disabled people have been asking for these accommodations they've been asking their universities to can they do online lectures can they do alternative things and they've just been given a blanket no and they've just been told no that that can't be possible whereas what the pandemic has shown is yes we can be imaginative and we can make things work for people and people work differently yes. so i really 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 hope that going forward this is things we learn from and things that we you know we allow people to work in a way that works for them so that they're able to access the jobs and the education that they want to access because mm. and i think it's hopefully a good start um and will only develop i hope we don't just go back to the way we were and just pretend that none of this happened and that we didn't learn something from this time yeah well i mean they say it takes three months to form a habit and we've been in lockdown or we've been in social distancing measures for several months now and it's, it seems as though it's going to continue for the foreseeable so i do hope that this becomes part and parcel of our lives that we are able to engage with people with organizations with events remotely as we have been doing and clearly we were able to function very effectively by doing so it's not affected a lot of workplaces you know where you don't require the physical presence and clearly we can still function very effectively. And I think, yeah, the pandemic, you're right, has accelerated a lot of these processes, which really should have been addressed years and years ago. And I don't know why they weren't before, but perhaps the pandemic has been a blessing in disguise in that sense, um, fostering more, you know, equal opportunities for people who may not necessarily be able to physically um, devote themselves, but, you know, mentally and in, in other capabilities very much can do so. And there's no reason to discriminate them. And in terms of final thoughts, so I usually ask my uh, guests to extract a quote from a book they've read and explain how they relate it to any feminist theme or anything that they might strongly uh, feel about or any other um, particular passion. And I sure. I add something like that. Yeah, I do. I am like a massive like poetry kind of person. I love me some poetry and like something just to kind of soothe my soul. <laughs> Um, sounds amazing i love poetry yeah um i like to go through it's from someone called april green and it's in a book called bloom for yourself and it's a little paragraph um which is like many of us i have suffered great loss bereavement shock and trauma all in a very short space of time the physical scars from a serious illness remain with me today and while i'm reminded of them each time i dress and undress i'm also reminded how my body kept me alive accepted every invasive treatment thrown at her and still knitted herself back together like a beautiful patchwork quilt. I look at things differently. I see the textures behind everything, the pain behind the smiles, the scars as jewels, as messengers sent to heal the greater parts of us. Yeah, so I, I just really like this. 
quote. Thank you. No, I just, and like, I am, like, don't get me wrong, there's disclaimer. Like, I remember when people, when I was really sick, people used to say to me, oh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Like, you know, <laughs> and that's bullshit. Like, All the cliches. Yeah, and it's like, that does not help someone who's literally, you know, fighting for their life. Like, it does not help. Where, but now that I'm coming through that and I'm learning about my scars and I'm learning about how things, and, you know, and like my trauma, I'm really thinking like, it's totally affected every way, every aspect of how I see the world mm. and how I see myself. And I can't be anything but grateful to that, even when it makes things more difficult because I, you know, I just, I can't help but wonder what I'd be like if I'd just gone to university and graduated and done, you know, lived the normal life. I think I would have been a bit of a dick, to be honest. Like, yeah, no, but it's made you more yeah. grateful, would you say, and more humble and not take things for granted like, like we yeah, all do. I just, I just, you know, I, I quite understand that, like, I literally only have one life and I literally fought for it to get to this point to make my, to force my body to get better, to, you know, so much hard work went into it. Now I'm here. I have to appreciate every moment of it and I have to put that back into something bigger than me as far as I see it. And I, I, I'm just really grateful for that opportunity, to be honest, even though it does, you know, come from a really dark horrible place and I feel like yeah it's just it is quite healing to feel like it's going into something and it's helping me in the long run even though yeah even though you know I like I would love to wake up tomorrow and just not be in pain and not have to take medical cannabis and just get on with my life but I know that's not going to happen and I'm completely fine with that now like I had totally accepted that and instead I'm actually contributing to something much bigger than myself and I can only be grateful for that. Yeah, it sounds like it's very fulfilling and you're contributing to hopefully what will be a better world in terms of addressing chronic pain, chronic conditions and debilitating lifelong conditions, which let's face it, you know, people don't really take seriously. And even if they do, and not many people do actually think about it. And I myself, you know, as an able-bodied person, it's not something that, you know, springs to my mind when I'm looking at things like inequality, and um, addressing social issues I don't always think oh yeah let's think about disabilities so having this conversation with you has actually really opened my eyes to um, you know a large section of the population who are on a daily basis suffering with a lot of the time you know invisible disabilities as you pointed out they may look fine um on the Mm. surface but you don't know what they're going through and you know i think you might have touched upon this earlier on in this conversation but mental illness as well a lot of the time it's derived from things like chronic pain you know and all these things are interlinked how we you know perceive others how we perceive ourselves through our minds our mental state our physical state and a lot of the time these sorts of uh, conversations don't really gel together and we don't really think of these issues from a wider perspective and looking at how they are sort of interlinked Um, and having this conversation with you today has really opened my my mind up to that and how everything that we see everything that we interact with uh, the way we treat the world even uh, is determined by our experiences, our lived experiences. And when we have a condition, for example, with your condition where you don't really think about, um, you know, what someone else is going through, the fact that you have to deal with that on a daily basis and the fact that you've actually accepted it, you know, really goes to show that um, 
you're able to address it and use it to help other people where you can through your campaign action through your engagement with other community members going through the same same thing as well um and, and that's truly really inspirational and yeah i can't believe you've got so much energy and so much positivity despite what you go through on a daily basis so for that i think that's that's incredible oh no thank you i mean you know no point getting in the downs and the dumps like i've been through that bad part and i'm like and i'm just you know i'm i'm one of the lucky ones i really am you know and it's i yeah i just yeah yeah and you can still the fact that you can still say that you know despite what you you're going through and the fact that i'm constantly taking things for granted you know that that's just a big contrast for me and yeah hopefully um and i'm sure uh, the listeners today will take great things away from from this conversation and from your insights and your own lived experience so thank you so much lucy for for being on brown don't frown uh, and i hope you enjoyed the experience Thank you so much for having me and for letting me share my many, many rants. <laughs> it's <laughs> been amazing. Really I've learned so much yeah so listeners if you want to stay up to date with Lucy's uh, campaign work and uh, the organization which she works for I'm sure you can get in touch on the website it's cleecommunity.org.uk um, or plea patient-led engagement for access on Facebook or any or Twitter Instagram wherever you want to find us amazing we are there (laughs) (laughs) amazing thank you so much and the listeners have a great evening bye bye thanks thank you so much for listening I hope you enjoyed this episode if you found this discussion or topic interesting and you want to share your views we'd love to hear from you I'm so grateful to those of you who have taken the time to leave me comments, reviews and messages about your thoughts on the podcast. It's really helped inform my direction for this season. Keep your comments coming. I really do love them. You can find us on Instagram, LinkedIn and Facebook by searching for Brown Don't Frown Podcast and on Twitter at BDF Podcast. You can also reach me on my blog at tanyasweeklydose.com please do join the conversation using the hashtag Brown Don't Frown podcast. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, I'd be super grateful if you could leave me a rating and review as this helps the podcast garner further traction. Please like, share and subscribe. Until next time, thank you.